Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here in Wiltshire. It's overcast with a light wind coming in from the southwest. Hello, it's Richard Heller in southeast London. It's um, a very nice day here, but I fear that southwest wind will blow it away. I'm sure it won't. And it, however wretched the day, we've got a wonderful guest, our old friend. You should introduce him. How many books has our friend written, do you think, now? It must be about sort of 395, almost as many as Graham Hicks scored at Worcester once. Well, um, officially, I mean, if we had articles, I'm sure it's way up in that stage. It's probably, if we had articles as well, it's probably up in the um, in the thousands, like that young Indian teenage cricketer of whom nothing more has been, been heard. Um, but I think the official count of his books is 37, and we're here to celebrate the latest of them, a very important book called Dreaming the Impossible by Mihir Bose. Um, which is subtitled The Battle to Create a Non-Racial Sports World. Very big subject, ranges not just over cricket, but over a great many other sports, um, basically all the whole spectrum of uh, sport in the United Kingdom, based on uh, extensive interviews with um, participants in sport. I think first, Mahir, I'd like to ask you, what did exactly did you mean by non-racial sport? How did, would you define that term? Here I'm borrowing from uh, one of the great men uh, of our times, Martin Luther King, who said uh, people should be judged not on the color of their skin, but on their merit. Uh, and similarly, what I mean by non-racial sport is you should be judged by your sporting ability, what you can do in sport on and off the field, not where your origins are, not where your ethnicity is, not where you were born or what color you were. That, that basically is it. It doesn't mean all of us... Um, will completely erase our origins or, or not be proud of them. But that fact is that if you are of a particular skin color or a particular ethnicity, that will not give you an immediate advantage, irrespective of your sporting merit. Indeed. And your book um, is not just about um, non-racial sport on the playing side, but it also, very importantly, talks about coaching, it talks about management, it talks about very significantly about journalism and commentary as um, as areas which also need to be non-racial in the sense that uh, you've just described. Yes, it does. And and I was very keen to, to go beyond the, the playing field. Uh, for many years, I have been reporting on, uh, on, on, on people who administer sport, as, as I told a Sunday Times sports editor, while the people in shorts are very important. There are people in, in jackets and trousers and suits who determine what the people in shorts do and how they play and so on. So I think that is important. And there are, there are certain very important changes that are, going, that are taking place there, um, which are ahead of what is happening on the sporting field. Absolutely. One important section of the book here is about the long struggle to end apartheid in sport in South Africa and end sporting relations with apartheid South Africa, which is um, not only an important subject in its own right, but it's a subject that's become very topical again in the um, context of the sporting boycott of Russia, isn't it? 
Yes, it has. And and I must say, I find it very strange and a bit disturbing that a simple equation is being made between the sporting boycott of South Africa and what we should do with regard to Russian sportsmen as a result of um, Putin's absolutely dreadful um, war that he's conducting um, in, in Ukraine. And, and this has led to the situation where Wimbledon tennis has banned individual players. When let us recall that even after the boycott was imposed on, on South African sport, individual tennis players were not boy, were not banned from Wimbledon. Fru McMillan, for instance, won doubles titles um, um, in the 70s at Wimbledon. Gary Player, the great golfer, um, won the British Open in 1968. I mean, he was a year. dreadful racist. I, I, I found it a terrible problem having Gary Player playing around the world when his own views were disgusting and he's represented a country with disgusting views, Mihir. Yes, I think you make a very good point, Peter. And in fact, you wrote your great book on Basil Oliveira, where you really exposed how the British establishment, despite the fact that they were forced uh, not to play cricket with South Africa, never really owned up. And 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 the problem here is that ba- Gary Player, for instance, very notable date in 1968, the same year that John Foster suddenly became an England Test selector and decided that um, Basil Oliveira, your great hero, um, uh, couldn't play for um, England, um, won the won the British Open and again in 1974 and nobody said a word nobody even asked these players to to make their positions clear it was felt that um, South Africa had a white South Africa had a system the individual players couldn't be held responsible and I feel what we are doing and this is where I, I, I find it absolutely deeply disturbing that terrible as Saudi Arabia's policies may be terrible as Putin's policies may be South Africa was very special and why was it special first of all White South Africa said we will only play white players in our team. It only played other white nations, England, Australia, New Zealand. And what is more, it told those white nations, you can only select your white players. So when when the All Blacks went to tour South Africa, they excluded their Maori players. And the New Zealand prime minister on one occasion apologized to his Maori players saying, I'm sorry, we can't select you. But, you know, otherwise the South Africans won't accept us. And of course, as 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 Peter wrote, Basil Oliveira uh, was selected. And, and then, of course, through a whole series of process, which which has never been, you know, you revealed it, but which has never been properly acknowledged yeah. by English sport, and that's one thing I was writing about, is is why uh, you know why England for so long accepted this um, South African mm. diktat. Yes, one of one of the points you bring out in your book actually is the way the the history. The Foster wasn't an exception. Historically, the MCC allowed uh, successive South African regimes to, to to select England cricket teams. I mean, the the most another notorious case was. Uh, Duleep yes. uh, in nineteen in, in was it nineteen twenty nine I think nineteen twenty nine who who the South Africans uh, instructed a compliant MCC not to select. Uh, and and I, I, I spoke to Leslie Ames many years ago when I did my history of Indian cricket, and he was a great England wicketkeeper. And he said to me, he said Duleep would have been the first name on my team sheet. He was then the best batsman in England. Actually, Richard and I, this brings us on to Richard and my campaign. I think it's Richard's idea, as all the best ideas tend to be. Um, and that is that we need to reclassify South African test matches before they were banned from test cricket, because they, it wasn't really a South African team. It was a white, a team of the white ruling regime, nothing more than that. And actually, South African cricket teams only begin 
uh, after Mandela comes to power. And we need to have some... Sorry, I was going to say, Peter, I would go further that in 1961, after South Africa left the Commonwealth and the test matches originally were meant to be, you know, not, not proper test matches and by a process which has never been revealed by the MCC, they became proper test matches. So the famous South Africa-Australia series of 1970 is classified as one of the great test series of all time. But it actually played between two entirely white nations because South Africa wouldn't have played Australia unless they were white, and um, South Africa, of course, was white. Was. Um, I'd like to bring back the, the situation of the ban on the Russian tennis players and Russian athletes generally. I think the argument would be, yes, it isn't. That, their case isn't on all fours with South Africa. Yes, the Russians haven't tried to interfere with selections of other people's um, uh, sporting teams. <laughs> but the Russians have, by invading Ukraine, devastated Ukrainian sport, among other things. They prevented Ukrainian uh, sports people from playing sport in their own country. And um, it's reasonable that the representatives of such a country shouldn't be playing international sport anywhere, shouldn't be playing at any tournaments anywhere. I think that the problem here, Richard, is that dreadful Putin's actions and Russia's actions in Ukraine are there are all sorts of regimes. For instance, what is uh, Saudi Arabia doing in Yemen? So why are we not saying the same thing about um, Saudi Arabia? And in fact, that war hasn't been um, well reported at all in, in, in the Western media. And I think that that is the problem. We are highlighting one awful uh, atrocity that is taking place at the, at the exclusion of the others. So there's got to be a uniform thing here then. Well, uh, that's very strong. I think there is a strong case for that. I mean, I think if you look, and you've, it's a subject you've studied yourself, Mir, I think international sporting bodies have an absolutely shocking record at dealing with, um, well, actually dealing with any global issues. They've got a shocking record on, huh, on you know, warfare, on aggression, or, on, um, on fascism. They don't generally. do very well on. I seem to remember the, the Olympic Association was extremely compliant with fascism, was it? Hitler, Nazism, and that they... Well, I mean, you know, Olympic authorities collaborated with the Nazi Olympics. They had the Absolutely. Nazi Olympics in Berlin. Um, as Maria knows, there was a rival Olympics. There was a workers' Olympics in um, in Barcelona instead, which unfortunately got interrupted by the Spanish Civil War. And, and, and if we may talk of two other regimes which are doing dreadful things, both to uh, um, Muslim communities, China's treatment of the uh, Uyghurs and uh, the Burmese regime's treatment of the Rohingyas, you know, the, these are absolutely genocidal things that are being done, which again, we living here in the West don't hear much about or, or see much action taken by our government. On the other hand, I mean, I, I think there is a sort of a solution, is there not? If a Russian uh, tennis player is happy to make clear his or her dislike or disapproval or renounce the war of aggression currently being fought by Russia in Ukraine, um, that may be, that, that would maybe would be enough, to my mind, just as if Gary Player had actually denounced apartheid, I think he would, might have been much more appropriate that he... He, he played international golf. Don't you think that would be more consistent? 
I think that would be more consistent, but perhaps for the Russian players, uh, they would be worried about what would happen to their families and so on and so forth. Um, but yes, I think I think the Russian individual Russian players ought to take a st uh, stand on this, and and um, it's a pity they haven't. But I think the way it's going is that um, team, uh, Russian team sport should obviously be excluded and from all international competitions, no question about it. But I think also we, we what we have done in, in the last few years is we have brought in nationalism too much into individual sport, flags have flown and things like that, which I think is, is something that, you know, there's too much nationalism in that sense. Yes, with team sport, there should be nationalism because that team is representing the country. But an individual, it can be claimed while he's from the country, he's not a representative of the country that is a question it is but i mean i think pursuing it a bit further when you have a sanctions regime against any aggressive violent oppressive country it targets a lot of people who aren't directly to blame for that country's actions not just sports people that um, economic boycotts target um consumers and uh, in general in the in the country and producers in in, a, in the country concerned uh, who aren't directly responsible? It's one of the, isn't it? It's it's just one of the, the casualties of any, any sanctions regime, any kind of resistance. And um, I th I think that there is a case for saying that all all sporting relations with a country benefit a country's ruling regime, whether they're carried out by teams or whether by they're carried out by individuals. And it's arguable that it's it's rough luck on the the individual sports people concerned, but it's part of the damage you, you have to impose for resisting a, a country by, uh, by means short of war. Yeah, and that uh, takes us on to another theme of Mihir's book, which is the, these rebel tours where the great and the good of English cricket collaborated with South African apartheid right up to the, to the fall of apartheid, uh, right up to the last moment. Uh, you know, the, the list of infamy is very long. Graham Gooch, Embury, Gatting, Underwood, all these lovely players who we adore, but they were they were collaborators of an evil regime and they got away with it. There was never any real punishment. No, they did get away with it. And, and uh, though some of them have since um, sort of semi-apologised, if you like. But I think that reflected the feeling here. For instance, uh, Jack Bailey expressed this very clearly, that the South Africans were, were you know, a part of us. We, we identified with them. They were, they were, if you like, you know, part of the, part of the same um, great British family. And therefore, we should not ostracise them. We should keep these links open. I mean, you know, in those days, if you remember, the sporting authorities and the this country were building bridges um, where somebody said, how long is this bridge, you know, and, and the feeling expressed was that when the white South Africans came here and played against England, and they saw that England had different religious and racial groups and uh, coexisting quite happily, they would overcome their own fear and change their country. And of course, that never happened, because that only reinforced their feeling that what they were doing was right. But can I, Richard, can I take up your point about that people, if you impose sanctions, all people are affected. Yes, of course they're affected. And the, the reason for sanctions is to make these people realize that what is being done in their name is bad and they should do something about it. But, you know, it's very interesting. I had 
a great privilege and pleasure, one of the great days in my life to have coffee with Nelson Mandela. Sorry, I'm dropping a huge name here at his home in Soweto. And this is soon after he was released. Long Surely it was Mandela who had coffee with you. Peter, <laughs> <laughs> you're very flattering. Um, but uh, and, um, and, and Mandela made the point there that um, what he was going to, well, he gave us this great story about uh, what De Klerk had told him. And he said, listen, if you can get the All Blacks, to come and play rugby in South Africa, then I can get my fellow whites to, to agree to, to remove apartheid. And, and at that stage, everybody Crikey, said, we are not going to remove the sporting sanctions till we have one man, one vote. That was the general idea. But Mandela said, no. He said, once sporting barriers are gone, once white South Africa says they will play with everyone, they will select on merit and so on, sporting relations can resume and sporting relations resumed long before apartheid was uh, was gone south africa went back to the olympics in 1992 and uh, south africa went to india played india they'd mm. never done that before and things like that i covered that first tour so what i'm saying is sport is one thing you 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 mustn't i think conflate while sport is very important and can play a part but the, but the larger political picture can often be um, much wider in how you how you change and in fact what should have happened with south africa is economic sanctions should have been imposed long before um, mm. anything else. And that would have had a much bigger impact. Well, I, um, I thought that account of your interview with Nelson Mandela, which told me an enormous amount, which I didn't know about his thinking at that critical time in history, was absolutely um, immense, Mihir. Thank you. It was wonderful to, to meet him and have coffee with him. And, and uh, I was with Sunil Gavaskar, my old schoolmate. And at the end of it, he rather stunned us by saying, um, could, you, could you give me something um, to um, take back as, as a symbol of this? And we thought, what's he doing? And then Mandela um, got out uh, some boxing belts that he had been given. He said, no, I better not give you that. I quite like boxing. And he gave him a book. So, you know, it was, it was wonderful. Uh, not trying to cap this, but I gave Nelson Mandela a copy of one of my books. <laughs> uh, in the, in the, uh, I'm sure it's um, reposing in the Mandela Library, just as the, like the one in the Cricket Club of India, uh, which never, <laughs> which we presented on tour with you, and uh, which never got borrowed. Um, because I've discovered that myself. It's a wonderful book. Well, thanks. Well, we won't. Let's not get into a mutual admiration side. Yours is a wonderful book, Mihir. And I want to get get us back to perhaps one of its big themes. The span of your book is really the, from the 1980s in the UK to the present, and it seems to me the picture you present is that most sports, especially association football, have inched forward to becoming. Uh, non-racial uh, in the um, in the way that you've described. Associated football courses particularly gone forward in the admission um, recognition of black players, uh, though not coaches and managers, which we'll come on to later. Association football, most other sports seem to have gone forwards. Professional cricket, uh, as you present it, seems to have gone backwards. It seems to be less representative of Afro-Caribbean and Asian origin populations than in the 1980s. Is, have I summarised that correctly? And if so, why is cricket done worse than other sports, in your view? 
Yes, you, you summarize it absolutely well. First of all, I think cricket has done worse because cricket became very complacent, um, you know, saying, oh, well, um, we have taken the lead in this. It's, 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 it's all been done. We've had a player of Asian origin, Nasser Hussein, has captain and so on and so forth. What it did not look at was is many situations where nothing was being done to encourage Asians and black players who had been part of the team were, were, were actually, you found these black players were not emerging because there wasn't enough opportunities given to them. The other thing that also happened was that if you re recall the great test matches against the West Indies at the Oval, um, the, the black population would, would flood in. And of course, then the authorities felt, oh, they were making too much noise. They were coming with their drums and things like that. And, and that sort of thing discouraged. But the other factor is, and I point to Yorkshire, yeah, the, I, I used to go in the 80s and report on this extensively. And I I was amazed that the Asians there had had been felt that they were so kept out of the loop that they formed their own cricket league, the Azam Cricket League, named after Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who was given the title of Azam. And and the fact that a separate cricket league was formed for the Asians is is amazing. It was a bit like the uh, return to the, uh, the days of the British Raj. And and when I spoke, you could see the divide. The 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 white administrators would say, no, 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 the Asians and um, don't play in the right teams and therefore right clubs and therefore the and get selected. When we, I spoke to the Asians, they say we can't get into those clubs. And Yorkshire allowed that divide. And, and there is still the Quadiasm League. In fact, there are two now, one, one in Sheffield as well. And, and nothing was done to bridge that gap. The, the cricket authorities didn't look at it. Yorkshire didn't look at it. They all felt, oh, well, it's all been, it's all been done. And if you read my interview with Tim Lamb, who ran cricket for mm -hmm. a long time, he, he makes it very clear. In fact, during the interview, he, he turned to me and said, but, you know, you've been talking about racism uh, against blacks what about racism against whites by blacks you know i mean that was that's his thinking remind us of how long tim lamb ran british english cricket he ran it for more than a decade during which period in the 90s i mean it was very know. troubling reading this uh, interview with tim lamb um it it explains a great deal about that somebody perfectly well-meaning person but clearly has zero comprehension of these issues uh, running English cricket for so long. So it tells you everything you want to know about the kind of people who run English cricket, isn't it? And why it's all, why, why we've gone backwards so fast. Yes, and I, I think Tim Lamb, for instance, made much of the fact that his mother was against apartheid and wouldn't have oranges from South Africa and, and things like that. But, you know, at the same time, he when I put to him, and this is after Azim Rafiq's revelations about what had happened to him in Yorkshire, he said, oh, no, no, he'd never seen any, any racism. He'd played with Imran Khan. He'd, he'd played with um, several players of West Indian origin in, in the Middlesex team and, and so on. And he, he just denied. And in fact, he was very, very critical or what Michael Holding said, you know, in his famous um, Sky documentary on, on racism a couple of years ago. And clearly he feels that all this is being drummed up and people are talking about it when there is not a problem. The thing that's always struck me as most striking about Yorkshire is that there's no curiosity within the hierarchy in Yorkshire about the fact that no Asian origin players are coming through into the Yorkshire team. Now, we hear a lot about the Yorkshire-born rule and how it supposedly discriminates against um, Asian-origin uh, players, but Asian people were starting to settle in um, Yorkshire from about the late 50s onwards on quite a substantial scale. And it seems to me that by about the late 70s, 
or even the early 80s, perhaps at the latest, a Yorkshire-born Asian, well, a number of Yorkshire-born Asians should have been breaking through into the Yorkshire team. In fact, as we know, no Asian origin player comes into Yorkshire until Sassan Tendulkar as an import in 1992, years later, and nobody seems curious about that, um, uh, about those missing players. No, and, and, I, and this is where I think we get into denial, because when I used to raise it um, and they say, oh, no, our rule is that you've got to be born within within the great county of Yorkshire, the greatest county in this country of ours and so on. And then they would say, oh, well, we've had the odd um, um, player who, who wasn't born, who's played for Yorkshire, but they all turned out to be white. They didn't select a non-white player. And even Sachin Tendulkar, when they finally broke the rule that overseas players can play for Yorkshire, their original choice was Craig McDermott, the Australian fast mm-hmm. bowler. And when he got injured, then Sachin Tendulkar was chosen. And, and Soli Adam, who is uh, an Indian of Muslim origin who lives in York, had to fight very hard. Soli Adam has told me that he had to fight very, very hard to get Sachin Tendulkar selected. And he had to overcome Fred Truman, who made it very, very clear, great bowler as Truman was, and a wonderful fast bowler, who made it very, very clear that he didn't think that that um, Asian should be playing. And I know from my personal experience, um, I'm going to tell you this Truman story. I was, I was at the Oval covering um, cricket in 1974 and Zahir Abbas came into bat. And I shan't um, use that um, uh, word with begins with F, but that's what Truman said. He F can't bat. And Zahir Abbas went on to make a double hundred and, and showed how he could bat. And of course, we all know what he could do. And you know, that, that ingrained attitude was there. And these are the people who were at the heart of Yorkshire cricket. And of course, if you put to them no this is there is racism they would deny it immediately and that is the problem i think the problem here with with race is not that everybody's racist but we should accept that there is racism but the problem then becomes that some white people feel the moment they accept racism that they are personally guilty we need to we need to divorce this idea that because we accept there is racism doesn't mean that the entire white community is racist or that there is a guilt on anybody who accepts that there is racism he, the, the individual person is not responsible and i I think that is a general problem in society. I have to say one part of your book I really enjoyed was your writing about Muin Ali. Of course, you know so well because you ghosted his autobiography. Um, and you remind us here of the famous episode when uh, Muin Ali was told by the Australians, is it not, that he was a... Uh, called, they called him Osama, uh, yeah, yeah. in a friendly way after Osama bin Laden, <laughs> the, the peace-loving Saudi Arabian, I think. Like. And um, and you remind us that this is this is a habit of Australians that they like to, uh, generally speaking, an Australia it's quite common for Australian to <laughs> cricket. Dean Jones did the same to to Hashim and Amla, another very great bearded cricketer, uh, called him a terrorist. Um, but you've been very discreet. You don't, you still haven't told us the identity of this um, Australian. Well, group. well, he's quite a famous Australian. I mean, Moen told me I, you know, Moen actually was very reluctant to tell me the story. I finally got it out of him. He named the player, and when I wrote, when I ghosted the book and submitted it to to Moen, 
for his approval and then the publishers. I had the name there, but uh, you will forgive me if I if I don't <laughs> in your broadcast going out to so many people name the player. But let's say he's he's uh, he's a very controversial player, very upfront player, and of course, uh, and, and then he he denied it. And this this you know, I mean, what is interesting about the story that the person who was most upset about it was Ben Stokes, and and you know, and this this is where I draw encouragement. Moen Ali's closest friend in the England dressing room is Ben Stokes, who he calls Stokesy, and he makes fun of him. Moen is a great Liverpool supporter, absolutely ardent Liverpool supporter, and Stokes doesn't know much about football and so on. And it was Stokes who was most upset, and Stokes who 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 then made clear his views to the player when that when the player got out. And of course, it was Stokes who helped Moen Ali get his great hat trick at the Oval. Lovely story that you tell. When um, Moen Ali got. Uh, two wickets, but with the last two balls of the over, and then the number 11 batsman was batting, and of course, Ben Stokes bowled the next over, and he was very worried that, you know, Ben Stokes could easily take that wicket, and, and that would be the end of the inning. Then Ben Stokes uh, reassured him and said, don't worry, I won't take the wicket, and I will make sure that when you start your over, you'll be bowling to number 11, which is what he did. And and I think that, and again, the other factor here, and this is where I think we need to know, we need to look at why this is not more widely prevalent, when Alistair Cook was captain, he would make sure that after England won a test match, the ritual is, is well known. The players get on the um, specially constructed little platform. Um, they open a bottle of champagne, spray each other, have a photograph taken. And Alistair Cook would always say, lads, have the photograph taken with Merwin. Let him go, and then you open the bottle of champagne. Because obviously, Moen is a very devout Muslim; doesn't drink champagne. Does anyway, But again, we have had stories recently mm. of when people haven't done that. And I think if Alistair Cook can do it, why should it be confined to an individual level? There should be a general appreciation of what people's different cultures yeah, are. I, and I what have they're... to say that um, I was that, again. Alistair Cook emerges very, very well. I think that. And for one of the reasons I'm very glad that Root is no longer England captain is he was is that he was obviously tone deaf to these. I'm not, we're not saying he's a racist; he wasn't. But he he the, what we now know from Azim Rafiq is that he would sit there and he'd be he he wouldn't intervene. He was he was a bit dim on that issue, and I think that Stokes, the portrait you paint of Stokes, is really encouraging, and it raises the question. Very interesting question, actually, that what Muin was has quite rightly been discreet about the reasons he parted company from the England test team. But Root mishandled him, I would say. And if he's the best friend of Stokes and Stokes comes back as captain, who's a much more impressive man, much more intelligent and leader of men. I'm wondering whether he'll bring back Muin and he, and he would have the ability to convince Muin to come back. That could well happen. And in fact, Moen told me when I asked him to compare Root with Owen Morgan. Moen is very, very impressed with Owen Morgan. And Root is a wonderful batsman, no question about his ability to bat. And he's got this lovely sort of boyish look about him. But as a captain, he doesn't inspire. And Moen told me that. As a captain, as a leader in the field, he is not. I mean, you know, great players sometimes are not great captains or great um, um, coaches and so on. And whereas I think somebody like Stokes, 
he has a bond with Moen Ali and maybe could persuade Moen Ali to come back. And Moen has always felt that he was never really given a proper chance uh, in the England team, particularly with his batting, because he, he has been pushed around in the batting order from all sorts of positions, yeah. when really he should be batting in the middle of the order and he can score runs at a terrific pace. I was very impressed by the confidence with which Stoke spoke, spoke about the England team he, he wants to run. You, you know, you immediately sense this was a man with drive and vision in that interview he gave last week. And um, I I, want, I think he'll bring back, may well bring back Moeen. And I'm even wondering, given the absence of an England opening batsman, whether, and this is the romantic thing to do, whether he might bring back Alistair Cook, who's still firing away on all cylinders from Essex, and might 20 times as good as any any anybody else for, in that role. I think that would be wonderful because Alistair Cook proved himself to be one of the great uh, opening batsmen um, we have seen. And the way he, way, in fact, given his start in cricket and also a lot of people questioned his technique, but he overcame his technique. You know, people have said about uh, Rory Burns's technique, which, which he hasn't been um, able to overcome the problems. Alistair Cook did and, and scored runs against everyone. And as you say, for Essex in the last couple of seasons, um, he's been sort of scoring 100 every time he goes to the, the and he's still a young man. I mean, he's sorry, he's 36. He's got, you know, for an opening batsman, he, a boycott went into his 40s. Gooch mm. reached his peak when he was about 40, facing, you know, a, you know the fastest bowlers in the world. I, I, I would, I think you should bring, Alistair Cook's had two, two years to sort of take life easy and enjoy his life on the farm and sort of uh, demolish second-rate England bowlers in the county circuit, bring him back into the test game as England opener, give him three more years, like Wash, Cyril Washbrook, Tom Graveney, they come, they bring them back. <laughs> Washbrook had a very brief comeback. Graveney, Graveney's a better example. Um, what wonderful player, Graveney, and a yeah. very, very nice guy. He was one Absolutely. of my uh, boyhood heroes. I saw him cover drive in, in Bombay as, as a 10-year-old, I can, and I was always, as you know, trying to emulate Graveney, well, and the two of you know how well I did it. So <laughs> I, I mean... Well, your, your cover drive was a sublime thing to watch. <laughs> Here. Actually, Tom Gravely, I, um, when I had the privilege of writing my book about Basil de Oliveira, uh, I sat down in the Worcester Pavilion one afternoon uh, and talked for an hour to Tom Gravely. And you're absolutely right. He was a superman to talk to. So generous, so wise. Yeah. Mm. a lot of your book is devoted to... Um, to football, um, and it's a terrible reminder of how awful the state of English football was in the in the nineteen eighties. Um, backward, parochial, xenophobic, and it was full of violence and racism, which you suffered from yourself. Uh, you narrate a terrifying experience at the beginning of it. Um, we've seen huge changes to that, especially in the representation of black players. But you've written very extensively about the formation of the Premier League and the economic revolution that that brought about in the state of football and the impact of foreign ownership, the impact of um, the impact of a culture which was devoted to commercial success and success on and off the field. And how far do you think that the Premier League in itself was responsible for the, um, the acceptance of black players in association football and will we get the same progress in non-racial cricket without an economic revolution to compare with the Premier League in cricket? 
You're quite right. The, the Premier League, whose formation was felt by many fans to be detrimental to football, has actually been a, a great boon to English football. Um, because one of, the, one of the features of English football, which a lot of people don't comment on, is that the, there has been a break between football and the community. The way football developed in this country is that it was always played at 3 p.m. on a Saturday. And the, the people who went to football worked in factories till about 1, 1.30. Then they went, then they walked to the pub, which was quite near the factory. And, and then they walked to the, to the football ground. And then they walked to their home, which was again, all part of within a, within a radius of about a mile, a mile and a half. And Fulham is a very good example. You know, you open any house in Fulham and, you know, you can actually see the Fulham football ground and, and Johnny Haynes's uh, great statue outside the ground now. But that has broken. Those, those white communities have actually migrated and then they they actually make the journey back uh, if you like recreating and the footsteps of their of their of their ancestors and and what has happened is many of those uh, grounds are surrounded by asians none of whom go to football none of whom are the football clubs make no attempt to attract them as far as the premier league is concerned what it did and here the European Union had an impact by the judgment of the European court. What it did was bring in players from around the world, black players and also black Muslim players. So now, for instance, in the Premier League clubs, they make provision for Muslims to pray. Um, Alan Pardew, I quote in the book, who was a, a player and a manager. And um, when he was manager, he saw the Muslim players going into the shower to play. And he said, oh, this is this is really wrong. And then, you know, it, it, arrangements were made. And, and I think that that has, and that progress you can see in what has happened in the last couple of years of taking the knee. The white players have joined the black players in saying racism is wrong. Whereas back in the 80s, the white players would tell the black players, the white managers would tell the black players, oh, you know, don't respond to this. Show us by um, um, what you can do on the field of play. You know, uh, every time they shout abuse at you, you, you knock the ball in the back of the net. That'll be an answer to them. I think that is where it has changed. Where it hasn't changed is in having uh, administrators, in having managers, in having coaches come up through the ranks. And that that has changed. And that change may take a very long time to come through. Although that has started, I've noticed just this year, we've got a few good, very good, brilliant, superb black coaches emerging at La Vieira, Patrick Vieira at Crystal Palace. Mm -hmm. What a moment. That, and suddenly you can think that's the next manager of Arsenal, can't you? Yes, you can, and and you know, I I think Vieira was um, was wonderful player. In fact, um, uh, a great deal of the success under Arsene Wenger at Arsenal was 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 due to Patrick Vieira in midfield. He combined English uh, strength and grit and determination with some wonderful skills. Um, and 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 you know, and, and I think you, you're. I quite suppose right. we can al allow you to get away with the phrase of English grit and determination. I'm not sure that <laughs> many others could get away with it. <laughs> Well, there is English grit and determination. One should never underestimate it. It's 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 represented by you and and Richard. Well, that, that does though take us on, doesn't it, to the issue of stereotyping? For years, black players were, um, you know, were stereotyped, and as you say in your book, it was assumed that a, a black player had to be a centre forward. It, you know, it was only good for banging the ball into the net and heading it. And an Asian players, in, not just in football, but in sport generally, seem to be stere Asian people seem to be stereotyped in sport generally, don't they, as you, as, as you say in your book, and are still, one could say, underrepresented in virtually every British sport in relation to their population. Is that right? 
Yes, it is. And also, um, if you speak to Sanjay Bhandari, who's of Asian origin, chairman of, of Kick It Out, he will tell you that this um, underrepresentation is, is quite dreadful and that the press is not interested in talking about it. And this, this image of the Asian being, you know, um, wanting to be a lawyer or a doctor and so on, the parents pushing them and, and that the, the Asians are not strong enough uh, to, to play football or they have no interest in football, which is, which is, which is an absolute myth. I grew up in India and I, I played football at my Jesuit school. The Asians who, um, who, whose origins are in Bangladesh and so on um, uh, grew up with football. The football they may have played might not have been of the highest standard. I don't deny that. But they played football. They were aware of football because uh, England's ruler was the subcontinent. Men's football was also um, taken there along with other sports. And, and the Asians are finding it, it difficult to break through. Luton is a very good example. Luton, um, uh, hoping to get back into the premiership. Luton is surrounded by um, Asians, people from um, um, Bangladeshi origin living around there. But Luton hasn't found an Asian player. Now they're trying to. And, and to, to give credit to the FA, they are providing money for coaches and so on, trying to get Asians to come in. But I've spoken to people who, who run um, those um, and the coaching things in, in, at Luton. And, and he says it might take 10, 15 years. Who knows? I remember when I looked at this back in 1996, um, the people at Luton says we, we needed an Imran Khan of football. And an Imran Khan of football hasn't emerged. You see, one of the things with sport is you need role models that you can, you can aspire to, who you can look forward to. I mean, you know, role models like Imran Khan, who's play, played a huge role in, in, in cricket and Sachin Tendulkar and people like that. But there aren't those role models in football. Football. How do you and and back in 1998, it's very interesting with Asian um, football. A, a book was written about. Um, Asians and, and, and football, and it had a forward by Glenn Hoddle, then the England manager, and he said Asian Laurie Cunningham is about to emerge, and Peter Reid, his fellow uh, England player, also said that, and, and, and that book had a, had, a, had, a, had a great joke about the Asian um, footballers, is uh, why don't they play, because every time they get a corner, they put up a corner shop, you see, that was a great joke about Asians, and, and to a certain extent, talking now, at, at grassroots level in London, and I've spoken extensively to people, um, Asian players do face a lot of discrimination, particularly if they're Muslim and have beards, their beards are tugged, they are told, go back to the mosque, and why aren't you cooking curry and things like that? You know, the sort of attitude that I experienced as a football reporter back in the 80s, you know, that in a way hasn't gone. And, and, and that is, I mean, it is changing. Mosal, I know he's Egyptian, he's not Asian, but... He is Muslim. He has got a beard. I, I think he and I. You, you told us earlier something I didn't know, which was that uh, Moeen Ali. Uh, he 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 was a Liverpool supporter. So. Yeah, that's all very lovely. And I think Mo Salah has been amazing in that respect, hasn't he? Yes, Mo Salah is a very, very good example. And Mo Salah actually illustrates how things have changed in Liverpool. And let's face it, Liverpool is a great club, a great football tradition, but racism in Liverpool was very deep and in, in the whole Merseyside area. And we know the experiences of John Barnes when he played for Liverpool. 
and, and, and things like that. And Mo Salah has been not only accepted, but Liverpool fans talk about Mo Salah going to mosque with, with great ease. And what is interesting here is, the, is what has been happening in, in business, where, where we have Majid Isak, the very devout Muslim managing director of Rothschild, and he's a Manchester United supporter. And he told me when, and when as a boy, when going to Liverpool, and we all know the, the great rivalry between United and Liverpool, he was chased around the ground being called a packy. But now, is Rothschild um, managing director and one of the uh, most uh, respected figures in, in finance, he goes into the boardroom and he's accepted. So if you like, um, money talks there and money does not recognize colors, as I'm sure, Peter, you, having been a great financial journalist, um, would accept. I had a lovely story about Mohammed Isak. I didn't know that. And uh... It's and he's a very devout Muslim. I mean, he's been yeah. he's been observing Ramadan at lunchtime. Yeah. He goes and up to mosque uh, prays. That's very and, exciting. Yeah, and, and and you know that shows that there can be change. And of course, Mahdi Choudhury, again um, of, of Muslim origin, is assistant secretary membership at the MCC. One of the few brown faces in that very white world. It is actually it's something that emerges very much as a theme of your book is people recognizing that. Racism is actually bad for business. Uh, a football club, a modern football club, cannot afford to be racist. It cuts itself off from, from uh, talent. It cuts itself off from a customer base. And um, I think one of the great impacts of the, of, the, um, of the Premier League was really the recognition that um, success counts and you cannot cut yourself off from any source of, um, of talent and commercial success, can you? No, absolutely not. And, you know, to a certain extent, the fans recognize this. And it's very interesting. The example I would give is the reaction of the fans to the attempt, the disastrous attempt to form this European Super League, which was, of course, led by six clubs, you know, among them, my own club, Tottenham Hotspur, Arsenal, Manchester City, Manchester United, Liverpool um, and, and, and Chelsea. And, and, and the point is, where the Manchester United supporters and the Liverpool supporters were very angry with their owners, particularly the Manchester United supporters, both of whom are white Americans. But the Manchester City supporters, while they didn't like the, the Super League idea, did not condemn their owner, Sheikh Mansour, who's, of course, money has completely transformed the situation. And if you look at Newcastle, Newcastle has welcomed Saudi investment, mm -hmm. quite very happy to see the back of their uh, white owner, uh, uh, Mike Ashley. And, you know, they're, they're even in Aldershot, for instance, which has, which has got a... I say that, um, although I was no fan of Mike Ashley, I find Mohammed bin Salman, I find um, even more, very much more problematic. I would absolutely agree with you. But, but what I'm saying is that the fans see not his colour. They see the money he's going to bring in and what he's going to do for the team. And, and of course, the Saudi regime can never be condoned for how it behaves and, and, and what it has done um, around the world and particularly in, in the Middle East. But nevertheless, what it shows is that at a certain level, color does not matter anymore. But the question is at what level and in what, what condition. And you talk about cricket and cricket has a paradox here. The paradox is this, that international cricket 
is run by the Indians. This is the first time that an international sport has been run by a non-white country. I, and, and I must say the Indians are behaving um, in the way they run international cricket in the old imperial ways. They've obviously um, closely studied the way England and Australia <laughs> used to run it and, and their leadership has, has been a very poor one in my opinion. But it's India that everybody cows down to. And even England preferred to play India for a five test series in, compared to any other country, it, it brings in even more money than the Ashes series. Though, of course, the Ashes series emotional hold is much greater, but nevertheless in money terms. But what has happened domestically, cricket thrives on the fact that England play international matches. Domestic cricket does not generate enough money. I remember in my first year as a, as a cricket correspondent in 1974, the, the legendary PA cricket correspondent said, listen, to get people back into domestic cricket, to watch domestic cricket, you will require another war and nobody wants another war um, and and this is what has happened in my experience of journalism going back to the 70s cricket and football used to be equal sport when we're after the fa cup final and and we are talking today on the eve of an fa cup final a football would stop you would go to reporting cricket football would disappear from the sports pages but now football is the all-consuming sport it never stops you know all the year round football is being reported whereas cricket matches even even the old daily telegraph for which both uh, Peter and I worked. And um, the Daily Telegraph used to report every county match. They don't do that, to provide a little summary. And that is where I think there has been, if you like, a, a development where cricket has become much more of a subsidiary sport, not the great sport of the English summer as it used to be um, back when I was a child. Well, you've conducted many interviews in your book, which are very illuminating, with people in sport, uh, players, managers, coaches, administrators, journalists. But I don't think you interviewed any politician, uh, certainly not none of the 15 sports ministers since the 1980s and Mrs. Thatcher. Uh, was this deliberate? Is this because you couldn't find any, couldn't think of any British politician who's made any impact on racial issues in British sport or had anything useful to say about them? Well, in my experience of interviewing politicians before, they've always given me sound bites. They've always said the most obvious thing. And I wanted my book to to try and explore things where, where we people would say things which, which really would mean something, which, which would take the story forward, if you like. And the politicians generally are very reluctant to do so. They're very reluctant to admit where we've come from, where we are going and what is happening. They, they join the bandwagon, which we've seen with, with, the, um, with the select committee, with the Asim Rafiq, uh, um, you know, um, allegations and, and, and racism charges again in, in Yorkshire cricket, but they are not willing to lead. This is not an area they're willing to lead. And what has also happened, and I've written about this before in, in other areas, is that politicians see sport as, as a useful um, weapon to, to further their own interests. And the, and the great example of that was uh, Tony Blair having to be persuaded by um, Tessa Giles that he should, he should back the London bid for the 2012 Olympics, something that uh, a lot of people um, in, in his cabinet were, were opposed to, including Gordon Brown. And he did it. And he did it in style, but he saw it as bringing him credit rather than doing anything for sport in general or for um, increasing sporting participation or anything like that. Mihir, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, fascinating book. Uh, great deal to say about the state of English and world sport. Great deal to say about the journey that both have still got to go before they become free of uh, racial discrimination in all its forms. Book 
once again is called Dreaming the Impossible, published by Barlin Books, and um, very strongly recommended. Thank you very much for joining us, Mihir. Thank you very much, Mihir. It was great fun. Thank you very much for having me. Well, the first uh, first guest to appear three times on the podcast. <laughs> yes. yep. they, th- they will think I'm 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 giving you a backhander, a bucksheesh, as they say. <laughs> uh, and it's goodbye from me, Peter Oborn. The sun has just come out in Wiltshire. Goodbye from me, Richard Heller. Uh, the sun is shining even more brightly in southeast London. <laughs>